You guys like that video? Yeah. Hey, you guys. It is so good to see you. My name is Eric. Can everyone say hi, Eric? And I am so pumped to be here with you guys this next week. We are going to have a fantastic time together, but I want to get to know you real quick. So on the count of three, I want you to say your name as loud as you can. I'm going to try to process as many of your names as possible. So on the count of three, say your name. One, two, three. Okay. All right. All right. Hey, hey. I think, I think I got it. Hey, before we jump into a picture, I just, as I was watching that video and as I was thinking about our theme and where I believe God is going to take us this week, this idea came to my mind and I want you to just sit on it for a minute. I want you to think about it. Who you think God is will shape who you ultimately become. That who you think God is will shape the kind of person that you become. And so this entire week, we're going to be diving in deep to the character, the nature, the reality of who God is. Because if we get an upfront, up close, real picture of who God is, it's going to transform our lives. I want to show you a few pictures so you guys can kind of get to know me a little bit. First picture I want to show you, this is me and my wife, Sarah, on our wedding day. This is me and Sarah on our wedding day. And by the way, Sarah's in the back over there somewhere. Sarah, can you stand up if you're in the back over there? Can you stand up real quick? You guys, today is Sarah's, today is Sarah's birthday, okay? So can we just all say happy birthday on the count of three? One, two, three. Happy birthday! Now, now this was our wedding day, and let me go ahead and answer a question that every single one of you are asking right now. You're asking yourself this. Was he 12 years old when they got married? Right? Like, that's what you're thinking? No, we were 14. We were much older than 12. I'm just kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Well, after this, after this, all of a sudden, we had our very first child. This is Charlie when he was a baby. Now, here's the thing. This entire week, I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable. I'm going to ask you to open up with your teachers and your counselors and your friends in your cabin time. I'm going to ask you to be transparent. And so, yes, that is a grown man in feety pajamas. Anybody willing to admit you still think feety pajamas are cool? Where are my people at? Raise your hand. Those are my people right there. Those are my people. Feety pajamas are still very cool. Well, next, our daughter Brinley was born. This is Brinley. And I love this picture of Brinley. I love this picture of Brinley because she's raised her hand and Brinley has a deep relationship with Jesus. I mean, you'll see she's a little older now. She really loves Jesus. And so I kind of think this was like, like her raising her hands like in worship, like, like Waymaker came on or like her favorite worship song came on. She raised her hand or maybe she's just going, hey, it was me that farted. You know, I don't know what she's thinking, but it was probably one of those. All right, let's go to the next picture. Then... We have Lila over here on the far right. We were taking some family photos over here. And the reason I love this photo of Lila is because Lila is having a near-death experience right now, okay? Lila's not sure she's going to survive this, 
this photo shoot. All right, let's go to, I think we have another picture. This is the rest. This is kind of all of us together. So my oldest son, Charlie, he's nine. Then we got Brinley, she's eight. We got Lyle over here, who's five. And then we got little Levi, who's three. And this is our family. And we are so excited to be up here this week. I've got my parents back there. And so we are so pumped to be with you this week. Now, uh, about a year ago, about a year ago, it was Tuesday night. I got home really late from work. And one of my jobs in our house is I'm the trash guy, okay? I take the trash out from the side of the house to the street. Do we have any of the trash people? Raise your hand if that's your chore at home, okay? So, so you're my people. So I get home super late. I get home super late on Tuesday night, and, and I go to the side of the house, and it's pitch black. And I, I walk over to the trash can, and I grab it, and I start to walk with the trash can towards the curb. Now, as I'm walking with this trash can, all of a sudden, with my eyes forward and my hand back here, all of a sudden, I feel this furry thing crawl over my hand. And you guys, I lose it. I lose it. I mean, I, I literally jump back. I literally jump back and I'm trying to figure out maybe it was a mop, maybe it was a duster. I don't know what it was, but man, I was rattled. My heart was starting to beat. So I walked up to the trash can again and I kicked the trash can. And when I kicked that trash can, you know what happened? A giant Godzilla-sized rat jumps out of the trash can. This thing you know, had just eaten a Chipotle burrito. I mean, this thing was huge. He jumps out of the trash can and he looks at me. He looks at me and we make eye contact. And I can't prove it to you guys. I can't prove it to you. But I, I think he said, I'm going to kill you. Like, that's what I heard. That's what I heard in my heart. And so you guys, I ran upstairs and my heart was beating so fast and I woke up my wife, Sarah, and I said, Sarah, put your hand on my chest. And, and she put her hand on my chest and she felt it beating. And she said, oh, is your heart beating for me? I was like, no, I almost died. Are you kidding me? And I tell her the whole story. Well, the next Tuesday, I get home late again, and I've got to take the trash out. So I walk over by the trash can, but this time I get this giant duster stick that we have. So I'm like 10 feet away from it, and I hit the trash can. And that Godzilla-sized rat, he grew three times. I mean, it's huge, right? He jumps out of the trash can again. We lock eyes. Can't prove it, but I think he said, I'm going to finish what I started. Like, that's what I heard. And all of a sudden, this time though, he jumps out of the trash can, he starts running towards me, okay? If you've, seen, if you've seen Jurassic Park, that's what it felt like, okay? That's just what it felt like. He's running towards me. I barely survived, barely survived. My heart is beating again. I run upstairs. I go, Sarah, it happened again. And I tell her the whole story. Now, here's the thing. I would love for all of you to believe that I'm brave, that I'm heroic, that I'm strong, 
that put me in front of any wild animal and I will hold my own. But the reality is, when I was faced with a rat, I ran in fear. You see, we have a tendency, we have a tendency to view too highly, to have a, to have a too high view of ourselves and sometimes a really small view of God. My hope is this week that you and I would get a more accurate view of ourselves and a way bigger, better view of God. Because in the same way that we like to paint a picture through social media and through the stories we tell, that we have it all together, that we're the heroes of the story, the truth is if we're not careful, we also like to paint pictures of what we want God to be like instead of who he actually is. I think my, my dude Hatchet is in the back, and Jesus, where are you, Jesus? Jesus, can you come up front real quick? Can you guys welcome Jesus? Give him a round of applause. <laughs> Jesus, come on stage, buddy. Jesus, what school are you from? Stone Ridge. Stone Ridge. Stone Ridge. All right, stand right here, Jesus. So here's the deal, and I'm going to hold these for you. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. If we're not careful... And maybe some of you have fallen into this trap like I have many times before. If we're not careful, here's what I want us to do. Hold on real quick. Hold on. I want you to think of Jesus as like the perfect picture of Jesus, which is not hard, Jesus. You're a really cool looking dude. Okay, so let's, let's picture Jesus as the perfect picture of Jesus and who he is. And how God wants us to actually see him for who he is. If we're not careful, we'll begin to paint God in the image we want him to be. In other words, go ahead and start painting. We'll begin to think these things. Catch me. As long as my sin doesn't hurt anybody, God's okay with it. Or maybe some of us, some of us have thought this. God is whoever you and I want him to be. Or, or this, if it's fun, God's okay with it. Or, or you could basically believe anything you want as long as you're a good person and everything's going to work out fine in the end. You see, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we will paint God in the image we want him to be and actually miss him for who he is. And so this week, I want to go on an adventure with each one of you. Together, I want us to stop painting God in our image, making up beliefs about God that we see online, we read on Instagram, others have told us. But instead, I want you and I this week to see God for who he really is. And so part of what that means is peeling back the layers and seeing God for who he really is. And so today, tonight, some of you, some of you may need to let go of the things that you've thought about God because you've read them online somewhere or a friend told you, but they're not actually backed up in Scripture. You see, God wants you and I to know him, and that's what we're going to do all week together. Can you guys give them a round of applause? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Hatchet. 
And so the questions we're going to answer in just a few short minutes, and if you're the note-taking type during every single chapel, I want you to bring your journals with you. I want you to bring your booklets with you. I want you to bring pens and Bibles because we're going to dig into Scripture. And I'm going to give you stuff to chew on and wrestle with all week long. And so I want you to go ahead and write this question down. The question is this, who is God and what is the Bible? Who is God and what is the Bible. Now we're going to move as quickly as we can because you guys are mature students. I know you can handle this. And my hope is you have some further deeper conversations later on tonight. Who is God and what is the Bible? Part one is this. Who is God? In Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God reveals himself to the Israelites, to the people of Jireh. He, he reveals himself as one God. In, in, in the middle of a culture that had so many gods, too many gods to even remember, the sun god and the moon god, the rain god, so many gods, the one true God speaks into creation to a group of people and says, I want you to understand me as one. This one God begins to interact with the people that he has created. And we see a, a beautiful interaction in Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw, catch this, you guys, this is huge. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Moses is seeing this bush consumed by fire, but it's not burning up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Now, now Moses just has a, a general curiosity here. He's not thinking, man, I'm going to post this later and people are going to comment and I'm going to go big. I'm going to become verified. I'm going to become an influencer. That's not what he's thinking. He's just noticing that something crazy is going on. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the Lord, or I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God says, Moses, you are standing on holy ground, to which we should ask the question, what made that ground holy? Was there something crazy special about that one specific location? No. Catch this, students. What made that place holy was the presence of God. And so this God, who's revealed as one, is 
holy. But this isn't the only time that we learn about God's holiness being on display. Fast forward a few books still in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, the story goes like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high, exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then catch this detail. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. These seraphim, which, is, which means like these, these angels on fire, they are not just going, holy, holy, holy. They're like, holy! I mean, these, these angels are screaming at the top of their lungs. Have you ever been to a, a professional sports game, an arena where you hear the crowd roaring and going crazy? Imagine that to the nth degree. These angels are crying out, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. This, this, this word holy in the original language it's kadosh in Hebrew, and it means to be set apart, to be sacred, to be pure, to be wholly other. God is not just like our buddy or our friend, though he is a friend of sinners, and though he is relational, God is completely other. God is completely set apart. He is creator. We are creation. He is infinite. We are finite. He is perfect. We are imperfect. This holy God is set apart. In other words, God, as we see him in scripture, God is before all things. He is the creator of all things. He is set apart from all things. He is relational. We can go that no, he is relational towards all things. He is powerful over all things and he is present in all things. Students, friends, the bigger your picture of God grows, the smaller your burdens and fears and worries and insecurities become. The bigger, the more powerful God becomes in your life the more laser-focused you become on following him. A.W. Tozer, a pastor and preacher and author, he, he, he talks about God's holiness and he says this, holy is just the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. God is holy, and he has made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of his universe. And yet the biggest surprise of all is this. 
that while you and I are not holy, while you and I are broken, sinners, selfish, and God is completely holy, completely perfect, and in every way separate and set apart from us, this is the beauty of who this one true God is. God's holiness does not drive him away from us. It drives him towards us. The temptation would be to think, well, since God is so holy and I am so not, he must want nothing to do with me. But what we're going to discover about this one true God all week long is that while he is completely set apart from us, while he is all-powerful and completely holy, and our sin must be dealt with, the pages of Scripture reveal a story of God where he is constantly running towards his people. In other words, God's perfection and his holiness and his power drives him to want to be in relationship with you. It drives him to pursue you. It drives him to love you with a holy kind of love that no other person ever could. But, but, but you guys are smart students, and so you're, you're probably asking this question. Okay, Eric, you're talking a lot about who God is, and you're using Bible verses to back up who God is, but I've got a question for you. Why should I trust anything the Bible says? Now, maybe some of you, because of the context you've grown up in, you thought that was, a, that was a, an off-limits question, that you should never question the Bible, that you should never ask, man, should we really trust it? And I want to tell you this. If you don't ask this question now, you will eventually ask this question later. And if you don't deal with this question now, if you don't wrestle with the validity, the trustworthiness of God's word now, I fear that later on you'll say, you know what, those were some nice stories when I was in junior high, but I've moved on from them. And so I want to offer you a few thoughts, a few ideas on what the Bible is and why you can trust what it says about who God is. Because if you can trust what it says about who God is, then you can be in a right relationship with God. But, but otherwise, if you can't trust what the Bible says, then what you think about God and what I think about God and what they think about God, well, it's just up to each person. So what is the Bible? The Bible is this. The Bible is God's inspired and authoritative revelation to humanity about who he is who we are, and how we are to love God and others. It's inspired, meaning it's, it's not just like any other book. It's authoritative, meaning it has authority over our lives, meaning what it calls sin, we trust is sin. What it calls good, we trust is good. And it's the revelation, it's the message it's the exciting reveal about who God is. Primarily, this is what the Bible is. It's the story of who God is. But then the Bible also tells us who we are and what it means to fully live. And here's what's crazy about the Bible. 
The Bible was actually written over a 1,600-year time period using multiple genres with 40 diverse authors in various locations on three different continents, and the Bible tells one unified story, the story of God. So the Bible was not just like, some man or some woman over here kind of writing a bunch of things out, taking like half a year to kind of write out this story and then to share it with the whole world. No. The collection of books, the 66 books that make up the entire Bible were written over such a long period of time. And, and let's dig in even deeper. The word Bible literally means books or library of books. The Bible genres that I was talking about, they include history and poetry and story and wisdom and songs and prophecy and letters. There's 66 books in this Bible. 39 of them are in the Old Testament. That means things that happened before Jesus showed up. There's 27 of them that are the New Testament, which include the stories of Jesus and then what happened to his followers afterwards. And in between that time period is called the intertestamental period. There's about 400 years where the Israelites were waiting for their Messiah. They were waiting for their Savior. It was written on hillsides in the wilderness and cities and dungeons and palaces on the continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe. And like I said, here's what's crazy. The Bible was written by 40 different people. Some of them were shepherds or poets or soldiers or scholars, servants, tax collectors, fishermen, entrepreneurs, and kings. And here's what's crazy about the Bible, y'all. Get this. In the year 1947, in the year 1947, the oldest copies of the Bible that we had, the oldest copies of the Bible dated 900 A.D., so as we looked at the copies from 980 to now, the current ones that we have, they matched. And you should be asking this question about the Bible. Maybe you got this Bible, someone gave you a Bible. You should be asking, okay, if this Bible was written 2,000 years ago, some parts of it 3,400 years ago, why should I believe that what I'm reading right now in English in the year 2022 is exactly what was written originally? It's a great question to ask. Well, in the year 1947, we had, we had copies of the Bible that dated to the year 900 AD, and overnight, everything changed. Because overnight, scholars discovered 223 brand new manuscripts of the Bible, brand new copies that they had never seen before. And once they dated these copies, they found that these copies, some of them dated all the way back to the year 125 BC. In other words, overnight, our oldest copies got older by a thousand years and everybody was asking the same question. Will the copies from 125 BC match the copies we have in 900 AD? And here's what's insane. With a thousand year time period between them, the consistency between them was 95%. And that remaining 5% was like a missing dot on an I or a missing cross of a T. 
It had nothing to do with the message, had nothing to do with the historical details, that the, literally the entire Bible had been preserved with a thousand years between them. This gives you and I confidence that what we're reading is what was originally written. Let's jump ahead to part three. Part three is how do we know that the Bible is true? Check this out. This is a biblical archaeologist speaking. He said this, of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts found by other archaeologists, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, phrase, clause, or sentence of the Bible, but always confirms and verifies the facts of the biblical record. So all of the crazy, specific, historical, geographic details that are included in the Bible, they consistently get validated and verified over and over again. Or how about this one? Did you know that the Bible contains 2,500 prophecies? A prophecy is a promise that God makes that he will fulfill. Of those 2,500 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. 2,000 of them have already happened. The chances of this, according to Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist, he said the chances of this happening are like 10 to the 20,000th power. It's unbelievable. Here's maybe three reasons real quick to consider taking seriously the Bible. Number one is this. The New Testament writers, they included embarrassing details about themselves. If the New Testament writers wanted to make up this story, were they the heroes? Why in the world would they include really embarrassing details like them falling asleep when Jesus needed them most? Or like Peter being called Satan by Jesus? Or some of them being confused and even doubting Jesus. If they were making up a story, why in the world would they make themselves look bad? They would only do that if they were actually telling the truth. Number two, the New Testament writers included events related to the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, that they would not have invented. Like Joseph, who was a part of the Sanhedrin, the women appearing, appearing at the tomb first. But this one, I think, is the most compelling of all. The New Testament writers abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs. They adopted the new ones that Jesus is Lord and that he was the Messiah and that he came back from the dead. And they did not de deny their testimony under persecution or threat of death. The disciples were living comfortable lives within a Jewish system and then all of a sudden, they saw Jesus come back from the dead, and they were willing and did give up all comfort. And in fact, most of them lost their lives. Why would they do that unless they actually saw it? So part number four, why should we read the Bible? We talked about what the Bible is, why we can believe it. Why should we read the Bible. I want to jump to 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Why do we read the Bible? Because when we do, it's like we're coming in contact with the breath of God. That we're getting close to him. Or Look at what it says in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to a dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God's word is alive and active. This means when you pick it up and read it, it's going to speak to your life. It's going to show you who God is. It's going to tell you who you are, and it's going to teach you how to follow him. Our last part for tonight is this, part number five. How can I read the Bible the right way? You're going to have lots of opportunities this week to spend time with God in his word. How can you read the Bible the right way? Here's just a few practical tips. Number one, get a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'll get you one. Talk with me, talk with your teachers, talk with any of your Hume staff. We will get you a Bible if you don't have one up here this week. Find a time and a place that works for you. Read one book of the Bible at a time from start to finish. Try it just beginning with one chapter a day. Ask lots of questions. Talk with your friends and your family. Here, here's a method of Bible reading that I love to use. It's called the SOAP method. When you read God's word, start by looking at the scripture, looking at the specific verses and underline or highlight the verses that are standing out to you. Then after you've read a section, make some observations. Who's in this story? When did this take place? Where was it? What's happening? Why is this taking place? Then think about what is the application? How does this apply to my life? God is not interested in you just knowing a lot of things about him. God doesn't want you to just have a collection in your brain of facts about him. He wants you to take what you know about him and love him and love others out in the world. And then lastly, pray. What should I pray in response to what I'm reading? Let's jump to the last Augustine quote. St. Augustine, the, the North African theologian from the fourth century, he said this, for now treat the scripture of God as the face of God. Melt in its presence. Why do we dig into the book? Why do we dig into the Bible? Because we want to treat it like it's the face of God. I want to melt in its presence because when we do, we discover who God really is. A couple of months ago, a woman came and a young woman came and sat in my office and she told me about all the things that she had experienced and she had had a really, really hard life. A lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, a lot of people taking advantage of her, a lot of hurt. And as she was sharing her story with me, this phrase just rolled off her tongue as if she had said it a hundred times before, and it didn't even shock her, but it stunned me. She said, I know that God hates me. And when she said that, my heart broke, and, and I let her finish what she was sharing, and then I said, can I tell you something? 
I said, I have no idea what it's like to live the life that you have lived. And I am so sorry for all the pain and the trauma that you have experienced. And some of you here right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your life has not been easy. You have gone through some really, really hard, painful stuff. And maybe you've begun to believe, like this young woman, that that because of all you've gone through, God hates you. Maybe it's one of the brushstrokes you've painted on his face, that because of your experiences, he hates you. But I looked at her and I said, what you have experienced is evidence that we live in a broken, messed up world. But if you're wanting to know how God feels about you, and maybe some of you, you didn't even know it, but you came up here this week wondering how God feels about you. I looked at her and I said, if you want to know how God feels about you, the only place you need to look is the cross. Your circumstances will not tell you how God feels about you. The cross will tell you everything about how God feels about you. And I said, if you're wondering how God feels about you, it's he loves you tremendously more than anyone else ever could. And he proved it by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. That that great act, that demonstration of love was not just for everybody else, but it was for you. And so if you're wondering, if you're here in this room right now and you're wondering, how does God feel about me? When you look at the cross, you see crystal clear God loves me, and God loves you. To which you can take that truth and enter into every hard and painful circumstance and say, this is hard, this is painful, this is overwhelming, but this does not describe or depict how God feels about me. The cross does. But how I got there is through the Word, through the Bible. And the reason I can trust the Bible is for all the things that we've just been talking about. And so for the rest of our time together, we're going to be opening God's Word. And my hope is that you're leaving here feeling even more confident that you and I can trust what this book says about who God is. And so let's peel back the layers. Let's open our eyes. Let's ask God to speak to us. And as we discover who he is, let's believe him and let's chase after him together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for every single student that you have brought here tonight. I thank you, God, that it is no accident they are here, that in fact, you have been pursuing them their entire lives, whether they know it or not. And God, I thank you that your scripture, your truth can be trusted. That there's not a, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, but there is your truth. 
and that you have revealed yourself to us. And so, God, would we peel back the layers? Would we put our, our brushes down? Would we stop trying to make you in our image? And instead, would we let you be who you are? And would we stand in awe of that? Because all of you loves all of us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.